I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Hey, good morning. It's Patricia Murphy. It's Tuesday. This is Seattle Now. The number of people under 18 seeking gender-affirming care has skyrocketed in Washington. The reasons for the surge are complicated, but the need is clear. In a minute, Seattle Times health reporter Elise Takahama will lay out exactly what this kind of care is and what's going on locally. But first, let's get you caught up. Washington State Ferries head Patty Rubstello is stepping down after three years on the job. Rubstello has had some family changes in the past year. She told staff last week she's leaving the department to explore a new chapter. Rubstello is the second transit leader to leave her post this month after Sound Transit CEO Julie Tim announced her resignation last week. Rubstello will stay on the job until early next year when a successor is chosen. Two notable Seattle-area businesses said they're going to close yesterday. Molbax Home and Garden blamed an ongoing issue with the Woodenville Redevelopment Plan for its demise. Confidential mediation between Molbax and the real estate group behind the redevelopment failed. Expect more details on that in January. And Chef Eduardo Jordan says his restaurant, June Baby, will close at the end of the month. June Baby temporarily closed in summer 2021 after a staff walkout related to a Seattle Times investigation in which multiple women accused Jordan of sexual misconduct. Jordan denied those allegations but issued an apology. And Seattle Public Schools will receive a $1.75 million settlement from Juul Labs and other vaping companies after joining a nationwide lawsuit four years ago. The suit alleged the companies deliberately advertised and designed their products to target kids, leading to a dramatic increase in youth vaping and nicotine addiction. As part of the settlement agreement, the district says the funds will be used as part of a multi-prong approach to fight youth vaping. Some of the money may also be used to address mental health issues that might lead a student to vape. The political fight over the rights of transgender people has exploded in the last year. One of the central controversies is gender-affirming care for young people. More than 20 states have restricted this kind of health care in the past year. That puts a spotlight on places like Washington. Our state is positioning itself as a safe haven for gender-diverse people of all ages. That includes people who are transgender, non-binary, and otherwise don't fit the mold. And the need for gender-affirming care here is booming. In 2015, Mary Bridge Children's Hospital in Tacoma provided gender-affirming care to 59 patients. Last year, they saw 730 Misinformation and stigma around this field of care have become talking points in the political fight over this issue. That makes access even more complex for families and young people. Elise Takahama has been digging into care for gender-diverse youth in our region and is here to explain what she found and why we might be seeing such high demand. Elise, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Let's start by talking about the political climate, because the bans on this care and the misinformation about it have taken up a lot of oxygen in the room. How did that show up in your reporting? 
Yeah, that came up so much, of course, because a lot of providers and even hospitals and clinics were really worried about even going on the record and talking with us and being a part of this project because of those reasons. We've seen throughout the country gender clinics get hate mail, get protests, get all types of attacks and harassment. And that is really hard to ignore. And so we, we tried to be really aware of that going through this reporting process. But that is something that also makes it difficult to report on this topic because Seattle Children's, for example, doesn't want to share their data with us um, because they, they I think they were concerned about it being taken out of context, um, about it being used against them at some point. So I think that that's you know, also very hard to ignore for young people and their families. They hear, you know, these political debates and this legislation and this anti-trans bans being passed. It's it's coming up in therapy for for many kids, they're saying, and and they're not really sure always how to, um, how to kind of navigate how that feels um, of having your personal health and your your personal journeys being talked about in these these very public spaces um, and not always by experts, um, to say the least. We're certainly going to be continuing to to look at that too and how these different changing policies and will affect care and affect access to care. Washington State has positioned itself as a safe haven for trans youth, as other states are banning the care. The legislature passed a law protecting the parents of trans youth who seek care in our state from possible prosecution in their homes. Let's talk about the landscape of care here and what options people do have. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Washington does continue to be comparatively a safe state, a safer state. Um, because of, as you mentioned, these shield laws, because of other legislation that the state has passed. Um, in 2021, the state required insurers to cover any sort of medically necessary gender affirming care. Um, and there is no age component in that legislation. So, you know, in theory, that should apply to teens and younger people as well. But, you know, of course, what what becomes tricky is that medically necessary language and what you know, we providers have told us and what we've seen according to records that we've requested from the state that that insurance companies will push back on that language and say, well, you know, we we know that we have to cover medically necessary gender affirming care, but in this case, we don't think it's medically necessary. Um, and so then, of course, the, you're starting a whole appeals battle going back and forth, and that can be really, really difficult for families to go through. I mean, it's so time consuming. Who has the time to go through an insurance battle? It can be expensive. And then of course it's, it's emotionally draining um, for, for especially youth who have to continue to wait on this medically necessary care. And there are a lot of people seeking this care. Demand for gender affirming care in Washington has exploded in the region over the last five years. Do we know why people seeking this care grew so much? That is a tough question, but I do think that what you, what we just talked about about you know legislation here has potentially made an impact. Um, one doctor we talked to, um, and, and actually several several other therapists talked about you know they've heard from a lot of their youth that they do feel safer you know asking questions or coming out, or they have more friends who identify as, as gender diverse. Um, there is more inclusion. There is less stigma around talking about um, gender identity now. And so I think that that 
does play a part, but it's certainly not the whole story. What about other states? Are people coming here from other states? Yeah, that was a really hard statistic to capture because our state really isn't tracking that in a specific way right now, or at least that's available mm-hmm. to the public. But yes, definitely providers have been saying they've been, they have received more and more requests from patients and families out of state. I think that that's something we're definitely going to continue to see as some of this other legislation starts to go into effect. Um, for example, in neighboring Idaho, they have a new law that basically bans gender-affirming care for minors, criminalizes it, and that law has not yet gone into effect, but it will in 2024. Elise, let's take a step back here because, as you've mentioned a couple of times now, there's a lot of misinformation out there on this topic. Gender-affirming care covers a lot of things. So let's talk about what exactly falls into this field. Of course, a lot of people, I think, when they hear this term, especially when it comes up in different legislation and in political debate, um, people are talking about medication and surgery While gender-affirming care, of course, includes that, it's also much more broad than that. Pediatric gender clinics are filled with multidisciplinary providers, um, anything from endocrinologists to mental health professionals to social supports, therapists. So, of course, you know, that's the clinical side. But gender-affirming care also includes a lot of these social and community supports as well. And especially for younger people, for kids and teens, something that we heard from providers is that that is often what is, you know, most important or at least definitely significant um, in helping younger people feel good about their gender, feel safe um, in exploring and, and asking some of these questions about their gender. Those are not always areas that get a lot of attention, that get a lot of funding, but are, you know, again, providers say just as important. This is one of the most interesting things I found about your article, because I feel like if you hear a term like gender affirming care, you are really getting a picture in your mind of a certain type of care, a transition, a surgery. But what you're talking about is really just being courteous and kind and supportive of someone who finds themselves on the spectrum of gender, referring to somebody as they, them, if that is their pronoun, supporting them in that journey. Elise, what did you hear from the young people you spoke with about why getting this kind of care is important to them? All sorts of stuff. I think providers have reminded me again and again that every family, every patient is different. But the main thing that a lot of young people kept reiterating was just that there are a lot of different ways to be trans. Um, There are a lot of different ways to show that and to present. Um, and, and I think that, you know, because they're, they're minors and because they're kids, I think it's easy for a lot of adults. And it's been clear over the course of hear- listening to a lot of this political debate that, you know, it is easy maybe to brush off some of this as like, oh, they're just kids. But, you know, they're, they're experiencing what a lot of providers are hoping that kids will do in general is just, you know, explore, ask questions, be curious. Um, that's that's a very, very normal thing for childhood and adolescence. And the stigma around trans and gender diverse kids is, is really disproportionate. One of the people that you spoke with described gender affirming care as suicide prevention. And I think it's important that we talk about that because exploring yourself as a young person is a natural thing, right? But like you mentioned, 
there's a big stigma out there. This can become a serious mental health conversation for many children. Yeah, definitely. It's really complicated, um, again, because every kid, every patient is different. And there are some kids who require gender-affirming medical or surgical care. Um, I shouldn't say kids, I should say some young people. But all that being said, yes, access to gender-affirming care can have significant mental health consequences and benefits. Gender euphoria has definitely been tracked and and reported on after young people get gender-affirming care. We've had local studies at UW that that talk about some of these mental health impacts after uh, young people get gender-affirming care versus um, some of the negative health and mental health impacts if they don't. Gender euphoria. Explain that term to me. Yeah, gender euphoria is uh, basically the opposite of gender dysphoria, the feeling of discomfort or unease when your gender identity doesn't align with your sex assigned at birth. And on the flip side, gender euphoria is the feeling of joy, um, of the feeling of your gender identity lining up with your sex. Um, And so that's something that a lot of trans and queer communities reference when they talk about really amazing celebratory positive experiences. Given that we have so much demand for care here in Washington, even though there are hurdles to jump over, are providers concerned that we can't meet the need? I think it's still a little bit early to tell. Concerns and conversations exist, I think, and have been going on all year. But at this point, there's really no way to know how many more patients are on their way. I think what providers have been able to confirm is that there aren't enough of them who, again, you know, have training and have experience working with gender diverse youth. A lot of young people we talked to, they did have therapists who allowed them to talk about gender diversity and their gender identity in therapy sessions, but at the same time, were they really well equipped to know what to recommend or, you know, you know, what to continue to talk about. Even if a kid has a therapist, sometimes they're not always the best person to talk to about gender identity. Cultural competency is so important uh, when it comes to caring for young people and their identities. And Elise, I think that's such an important point that you're making that we're not quite there yet in terms of best practices and competency of care. Elise Takahama, health reporter for the Seattle Times. Really appreciate your reporting. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me, Trish. Thanks so much for listening to Seattle Now. And thanks to our newest supporters, Valerie, Beyon, Elizabeth, Crane, Savvy, and Sean. We are thrilled to have you on our team. Thanks so much. You can be like them and support the show through the link in the show notes. Today's episode was produced by Claire McGrain. Our production team also includes Caroline Chamberlain-Gomez, Jenny Cecilmore, and Vaughn Jones. Matt Jorgensen does our theme music. Seattle Now and KUOW Public Radio are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Patricia Murphy. See you tomorrow. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.